And the things you have heard from me say in the presence of many witnesses, sorry, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. As usual, let me uh, organise myself up here. Well, it's, um, it's actually really encouraging to hear uh, from Jane. Uh, where's she gone? Uh, she is there. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and uh, I have great confidence in our leadership group uh, as they go through that whole selection process. So please do be praying for them. Uh, as I've been working through uh, this text from 2 Timothy, what I've actually been thinking is you could almost model uh, a job uh, description based on what Paul is actually giving us. So as you're looking for the, the mystery man who will be the next senior pastor, uh, what should you be looking for? Now, stop and think about this. Think about the kind of things you would like. Maybe the things you've liked in me or maybe the things that you haven't liked in me. You want someone different. That's okay. Are you looking for someone who's uh, dashingly handsome, charismatic, you know? You've had that and you'd like to keep that in the role? No, that's okay. I'm talking about Matt, obviously. <laughs> um, are you looking for someone who fits a certain demographic? You know, you'd love to have someone who comes in, maybe brings a young family or maybe someone slightly older. Are you looking for someone with particular kinds of gifts? Now, can I say none of these, none of these are irrelevant, but I don't think they should be primary. None of them are irrelevant, but I don't think they should be primary. Paul, in this letter, it's his last letter to Timothy. He lays out the key characteristics, the key responsibilities of a Christian leader for a ministry that lasts. And you need to know this. Not just the leadership team and those who are going to be joining them in that selection process, but you as a congregation need to know this because it shapes your expectations that you have for your pastors. But is it just for the leadership? No. What Paul is saying here to Timothy maybe is in the context of leadership, but it comes down. Because the Christian ministry, the Christian discipleship, is all about imitation. What does Paul say uh, in 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? He says, follow me as I follow Christ. So what Paul saw in Christ and what he heard in God's word and what was preached to Paul, he then became. And then he called those who followed him to follow him as he followed Christ. And so there is a category where Christian leaders, they might set the patterns 
But everyone falls into that pattern. And so you need to set the pattern right, but it does reflect us individually, even though we may not be leaders per se. But can I say also, there is lots of leadership in this church and outside that is not formally recognised by titles like pastor. Let me give you one. Every parent among you, you are a pastor of your own flock. It's called your family. You are a leader within that with responsibilities and authority. That is there. We're going to talk about it this morning under three headings. The task, provision and responsibility. Number one, task. As I've said, Paul is passing the baton. Uh, From what we can tell from the letter, Paul is on trial. Uh, He is in Rome. He is very much awaiting his execution. He speaks in chapter four of being uh, ready to, uh, he's being poured out. He is ready to depart. And so these are the last words that he's passing on to his protege, Timothy. He's handing over the leadership. And we've seen he's given certain characteristics. So chapter one, verse eight, he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Timothy should not be ashamed about the gospel and those who serve, no matter how their situation seems to pan out. He goes on and he says in the rest of verse 8 of chapter 1, join with me in suffering for the gospel. So don't be ashamed, join in suffering. He goes on and we looked at this last week when he says, what you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. So he's not to be ashamed, he's to join in suffering and he's to keep Paul's teaching as a model, as the pattern with faith and love in Christ. The next verse, verse 14, he tells him to guard the good deposit. And now in chapter 2, verse 2, he says this teaching... The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will be able to qualify, uh, be qualified to teach others. So Paul, Paul gives to Timothy a task and there is a view that he, Timothy, will then give that task to others who will give them to others to give them to others. And so this kind of cascading effect is the very heart of Christian life and service. And 2,000 years later, we sit here on the far side of the world as the products of someone who has passed this teaching again and again and again and again and again. Down the line, pass it on. Paul says to Timothy, you are responsible for the ongoing orthodoxy of the church. It's a big ask, isn't it? Wow. You've got to keep the pattern. You've got to guard the deposit. You've got to pass it on. And that's not just us as leaders. That's all of us. It's a massive task. It's a costly task. And so Paul brings up the cost again. Verse 3. Join with me in suffering. 
like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul's taken a lesson out of Jesus' book. Uh, He pulls no punches. He doesn't sort of uh, dress up Christian life and Christian service, uh, make it look really good. And once you get in there, you kind of go, oh, actually, it's not what I thought it was. He's right up front. He speaks of the suffering that is necessary for those who will serve God. You might have heard the story of uh, Ernest Shackleton. Has anyone heard of Shackleton? Shackleton was a polar explorer, Antarctic explorer. Uh, And there's a legend that may or may not be true, that when it came time for him to embark on one uh, one of his expeditions, this was the ad that he put. Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. Ernest Sackleton for Burlington Street. Supposedly, if this is true and the legend is right, he got more than 5,000 applicants for his quest. Up front, Shackleton says, this is what you're getting yourself in for. Up front, Paul is saying to Timothy and to us, this is what you've signed up for. And he gives three images, three images that are probably three of the hardest working occupations. He speaks of the soldier in verse four, the athlete in verse five and the farmer in verse six. None of these are easy jobs. They're hardworking jobs. They are characterised by suffering. And what characterises all three is they are intentional, costly action. It's all about focus. What's the focus of the soldier? Paul tells us it's to please the recruiting officer, the commanding officer. What's the focus of the athlete? Why do they sacrifice so much to win the crown? What's the, sacri- what's the focus of the farmer? It's so that they might harvest the crop. There is focus in all three. There are rules in all three. If you're going to please your commanding officer, you have to respect military discipline. If you are going to win the crown, you must compete by the rules of the race. If you're going to harvest a crop, there are the laws of nature. You must do the right things at the right time. There's focus, there are rules, and there are rewards. Implied with the soldier pleasing their commanding officer is the commendation and perhaps even promotion. The athlete competes for the victor's crown and the farmer labours for the first share of the crops. There's focus There are rules and there are rewards. And Paul tells Timothy in verse 7 to reflect on this. Because these three, the soldier, the athlete and the farmer, are three models that he presents. Three images that give insight into Christian leadership. It's hard work. It requires focused action. We just don't turn up and do stuff for the sake of doing stuff. God has given us a commission. Jesus has told us to go and make disciples of all nations. 
And those disciples are to make disciples. The baton goes out. We as Christians don't just belong to a society. We are part of a mission organisation. He calls us to focused action. And we are to behave according to the pattern. As Paul said to Timothy, you are to keep the pattern of sound teaching. You are to guard the good deposit. It's not a free-for-all. It's not what anyone thinks. It's what God has told us in his word. That is what we are called to follow. We are not free to pick and choose. We don't have the liberty to say, I like this bit, but I don't like that bit. No, we are disciples of the Lord Jesus and it is his teaching. The stuff we like and the stuff we find harder. That is there. Focused action according to the pattern. And the promise is that the crown awaits. It's interesting. What are the rewards of the Christian life? Yes, there's eternity with God. But you know what? There are more concrete rewards as well. Not just the here and the now and the great joy you get as you see God using you in his service. But Paul speaks of the churches of the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, and he speaks of them as his crown. So what does that actually mean? It means, I think, that Paul is going to get to heaven. He's going to get to that last day and he will see those men and women that he had the privilege of witnessing to, of seeing God bring to faith, of building them up in Christ. And he can see how God has used his service. Who is our crown? Who are those that we are seeking to impact? Who are those that we are serving in God's name according to his rules that focused action, that we might get to the end and go, wow, God used me by his spirit in his power to bring these people. Do we see that? Paul tells Timothy, he tells us, it is hard work. We are called to focus action. We are called to labor according to the pattern For the crown awaits. Is it just pastors? I've already spoken about this a little bit. No, it's not just pastors. It's not just formal leaders. It's especially them. But it does overflow to all of us. I was asked last week uh, by one of the members of our congregation, I'm not going to name them, uh, you know, what what are some of the the insights that, that I've garnered over years in ministry and what are some of the the griefs and some of the joys and we were just chatting about this it's a time for that kind of thing Uh, and one of the things that has come up again and again and again and I, I don't raise this to raise guilt for you but what I've seen and what I've heard is so many parents either parents of younger kids concerned that their children grow in the knowledge and love of God or the grief of older parents who've seen kids walk away from the faith, who've seen children at this point of their life say, actually, I don't want anything to do with church and Christianity. I'm quite happy where I am. Thank you very much. Parents, do you see 
that actually that primary responsibility rests with you. You are the pastors, the leaders of your families. Ephesians 6 tells the husbands particularly to raise their children in the knowledge and love of Christ. Guys, do we take that responsibility? Maybe we're happy to throw around the weight a little bit with, uh, you know, God made me the head of the house. I hope that's not you. But no, he made you the servant leader of your household. The one who lays down his life for his wife and his children. Do your children see in you, dads and mums, something that calls them to the great hope that is in Christ? Or do they see this ambiguous mix? The Christian life is about imitation. Our children catch as much as learn faith. Yes, it's God's work. Yes, it is his spirit in their hearts. But we are not irrelevant. Take that seriously. We are called to focus action. Parents, you are called to focused action. And maybe at this stage of your life, if you are one of those older parents who is grieving, your focused action is to pray for that child, even though they may be 20, 30, 40, 50 to uphold your children and your grandchildren before the Lord and to be that witness, that ongoing witness of love and grace and truth. Maybe that's there. Younger parents, make sure your, your children see the wholehearted commitment that you have to Christ, how you set Christ and his service before all other things. And where that is not true, brother, sister, your kids will pick that up. They will see mum and dad say, yes, Jesus, but yes, everything else as well. And that doesn't work. You can only say ultimately yes to one thing. And with Christ on the throne, it then determines how everything else fits. When it comes to the crunch, what do you choose? Who do you follow? Do you find reasons to say no to Jesus and yes to other things? It's a big topic. But suffering, suffering is key. Paul says to Timothy, join me in suffering. Why? Because Christ calls us out of the world. We live out of step with the world. And so they will look at us with derision, with scorn, with contempt. There will be misunderstandings, misrepresentations as we turn away from things that they embrace. Funny story, funny in a kind of odd way. A friend of mine back in Sydney, uh, his his son was a really, really good footy player. When I say footy, the real footy, uh, rugby union, okay? Uh, the one that's there. Anyway, we can get into that debate later. Um, but anyway, their team was, I think they won their division and they were being sort of pushed up into um, a, a division and, and a competition that was going to be playing on Sunday morning. 
Uh, and my mate said, no, actually, my son's not going to be playing. And the scorn that he copped, what kind of a parent are you? That you deprive your child of this privilege. You're letting everyone down. He said, no, I'm a Christian. Church is primary. God's people are primary. I serve Christ, not football. He didn't say it in quite those words. But that was the cost. And he was ridiculed and his son was ridiculed in front of his team. Join me in suffering. Because he knew at that moment, if he'd said yes to football and no to Jesus, that would have been a lesson for his son. And we sacrifice day by day by day. There are hostility. There is often active persecution. Richard Baxter, one of my favourite little authors from a long time ago, he speaks to the pastors, the leaders amongst us. He says this. Here he is. Looks like a very serious chap. If you will be leaders against the prince of darkness, he will spare you no more than God restrains him. He bears the greatest malice to those who engage to do him the greatest mischief. As he hates Christ more than any of us, because he is the general of the field, the captain of our salvation, And he does more against Christ's kingdom than all the world might do. So does he hate leaders under Christ more than the common soldier. He knows what a rout he may make among them if their leaders fall before their eyes. He has long tried that way of fighting, smiting the shepherd that he might scatter the flock. And so great has been his success this way that he will continue to follow it as far as he is able. Take heed, therefore, brothers and sisters, for the enemy has a special eye on you. Join with me in suffering. So you're feeling daunted? (laughs) Brings us to God's provision. Back to verse 1 of chapter 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't like picking fights with translations of the New Testament, but this is a terrible translation. Because what does it imply? Be strong. Whose action is that? It's yours, isn't it? It's your responsibility. Literally, the ESV is much closer. This is just another translation. It's always good to compare. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see the difference? One, it's all about you. You've got to be strong. This is be strengthened. And I even want to pick a fight with this one. Because if you're a a nerd out there and you know you're Greek, this is a present tense. So it's not just be strengthened once. It's be strengthened day by day by day. So you could translate this quite helpfully. You then, my child, be strengthened each and every day by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the focus isn't on you. The focus is on the grace that is in him coming to you. What does that mean? Well, Paul has already talked about this. 
a little bit earlier when he's talked about the gospel in chapter 1. In verse 8, I think it is, he says, Do not be ashamed, rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus. What he's talking to us here is not just God's generosity as a general category, but he's talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, be strengthened by the gospel. Each and every day, let the grace that is yours in Christ through his death and resurrection come and make you strong. And how does that work? Well, it gives us two things I'm going to focus in. It gives us lots of things. It gives us security. Because if we are saved by Christ's work, we are secure. Paul tells us that he destroyed death. And death is the great enemy. He has conquered Satan. He has broken sin's hold on us. We are secure. And so what does, and I've lost, you're going to have to flick, I've lost control here, Joel. Uh, What does Jesus say? He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What a great promise. The strength that is ours, the strength that comes to us from the gospel is the strength that says nothing can take us out of his hand because he has done it. It doesn't depend upon us to do. It depended on him and it is done. And so we have incredible assurance when the world is against us. Christ is for us. The end of Romans 8 is brilliant on this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also along with him give us all things? He's given us Christ. We are secure. Our hope is certain. Brothers and sisters, be strengthened in the grace. We have confidence. Confidence to face our own weakness. Because it doesn't depend on us to face our own failures. Because we know that in him there is grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it is ours. We have strength. We have security. And we also have strength. How did Paul talk about the Holy Spirit in chapter 1? He said we didn't get... A spirit that makes us timid. But it is a spirit who gives us strength or power, love and self-discipline. The Apostle John says this. He says, you dear children are from God and you have overcome them, the false teachers and the world's opposition. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. God who lives in us by by his spirit. He gives us strength. What does this look like? Well, it's not this. I had to get a Star Wars reference in there somewhere. But what is it? 
What does the Spirit do? What does this Spirit of power give us? Not force lightning. The Spirit gives us the victory of Christ over sin, death and evil. He breaks sin's power and he empowers and motivates us to live for God. But that still leaves us with a question. If that's the grace that makes us strong, that strengthens us, what do we do? Responsibility. Because if you think about it, how can you command something that doesn't actually depend upon you? Be strengthened by. I can command. This is why it's a weird piece of grammar. I can command you to be strong. But I can't command. How can you command an idea that is what someone else does to you? Is that, do you get the weirdness there? And this is the trick of the Christian life. Because it's not primarily about us. Now, some people have kind of said, oh, it means let go and let God. Maybe you've heard that. Well, yes, but. Yes, it doesn't depend on you. Yes, it is in God's court. But we have an opportunity, we have a responsibility to be ready to receive blessing. Faith has been described as the empty hands that are held out to receive. We go to God to seek that strength that comes to us through the gospel. Now, I want to give you three things. And you know I love alliteration. They all start with A. Yay. Okay. Apprehension. That's not apprehension in terms of oh, concern, but it's grasping something, understanding something. Now, what do we need to grasp? Well, there's lots of things you could. What do we need to apprehend First and foremost, the gospel. Now, I gave you three C's for the gospel. Does anyone remember the three C's? Come on. What are the three C's? First one, cradle. Second one, cross. Third one, crown. Very simple way. If you want to be really techie, you can say incarnation, atonement, resurrection rule, or resurrection reign, return. Notice the R's, okay, they're all there, okay. But the key to this is why did God do this? Christ stepped into our humanity. He lived for us, he died for us, and through faith in him, we rise with him. The whole idea of in our place is so critical to the gospel. Jesus did this for us. We need to apprehend this. We need to understand the gospel and not just the facts of the gospel, but its fruit. What are the implications that flow from this? The implications, things like, I am accepted. I am secure. I am loved. Not because of anything I have done but because the grace that has come to me through the gospel. We must apprehend the gospel. We also need to apprehend the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells Timothy to guard the good deposit by the Spirit. We need to understand what the Spirit does do and perhaps even doesn't do 
in our life. Great little quote. The Spirit does not take his pupils beyond the cross, but ever more deeply into it. The role of the Spirit is to take what Christ has done for us, what God in his purposes intended, and to make it personally real in our life. What, the Spirit, what, the, what Christ made possible, that we might be forgiven, that we might be set free from sin, that we might be loved, the Spirit makes actual, brings us in, makes us gods, applies forgiveness, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. It is the spirit who equips us. It is the spirit who makes us holy. It is the spirit who instructs us through the word. He guides us, empowers us for witness, enable us in prayer. He comforts us and assures us. We need to grasp what the role of the Holy Spirit is. Not only do we need things in our heads, we need things in our hearts. Attitude. I love this word. Or. Not O-R, not O-R-E, but A-W-E. We should have a view of God that makes us go, wow. Do you have that? Do you have that? Do we have an understanding of God as we understand his gospel, as we understand what the spirit grants us, what the son has done, what the father intended and purposed in Christ? Does it leave us in awe? Not a manufactured awe, but just a wow. Paul Tripp said this, he said, something is wrong with worship that fails to inspire awe. Something is defective in exegesis that does not inspire awe. Theological instruction that does not arouse awe is broken. Biblical literacy that fails to stimulate awe is missing something. When personal discipleship does not produce vertical awe, something is amiss. And maybe this is a question for your future pastor. Will you, with the best of your intentions and a great dependence upon God, seek to bring awe through the ministry, awe of God? To inspire awe in God is the grand agenda of every form of ministry. Awe. Not just a nodding, passing Oh, yeah, God, he's pretty good. But a wow. A wow. Because when we see God, it will bring our second attitude, humility. Remember Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, he's in the temple and he sees a vision of God. And what does he say? He says, woe is me. I am ruined. I am a sinful man, I live among a sinful people, and I have seen the Almighty. Job, at the end of his uh, time disputing with God, he he says this, he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I despise myself and repent 
in dust and ashes. Do we have that humility? This is God. Do we have that awe? That awe that not just leaves us grasping things of God, but brings us to action. Our third one. Two things just to conclude. Key actions. If we see God and we see him truly, if we are seeking to be filled by the grace, be strengthened by the grace that is ours through the gospel, we have to see our need. Isaiah is a prophet. Job is one of the great saints. They are brought to their knees in repentance before God. They cast themselves upon God's grace. What role does repentance have in our lives? Not just repentance for sin, but repentance of self. The self-reliance that is so typical that we have. You know, us more capable, more gifted, naturally people. The temptation for us is to think, I can do this. No. Martin Luther spotted this. 95 Thesis, this is number one. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Turning from self, turning from sin, turning to God. Repentance and worship. When we see God for who he is, when we understand his grace to us and the gift of the spirit and the spirit leads us further and further into the grace that is ours through Christ, it should lead us to worship. And not just worship when we sing. Yes, that is worship, but that's just one aspect of worship. Worship as we live in obedience to him, as we center our lives around him. Worship personally as we day by day go to his word. Worship as we spend time responding to him in prayer. Worship when we set his honour above all else. Personally, corporately. Worship as we live together as his people. As we come under his word as we give thanks to him, as we sing his praises. Worship. It's at the heart of our response. So how do we get ready to receive? We cultivate these things. We understand his grace to us in the gospel and the gift of the spirit. We look for this opportunity to be amazed. We ask the Spirit to open our eyes that we might see God and his glory. And as we do, we are prepared to echo Job and Isaiah. Peter, Paul, and so many other saints. We repent of self and of sin, and we turn to God again and again and again in worship.
So you then, children of God, brothers and sisters, be strengthened day by day in the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing word. Your spirit empowered, inspired Paul to write to Timothy. Setting before him the great responsibility, but your abundant provision all the more. Father, we know that serving you sets us at odds with this world that will not acknowledge you. But Father, we also know that through your grace to us in Christ, you have given us everything we need. And we have every certainty that our hope is sure. Father, lead us, lead us by your spirit into a greater understanding, a greater sense of awe and wonder that you are our God and we are your people. And Father, let us live lives centered around you in worship of you each and every day. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.